Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, we're delighted this evening to um, have Erthring Cousin, um, who is the Executive Director of the United Nations World Food Programme, um, to talk to us uh, about the problems and challenges of the WFP uh, in the contemporary uh, environment. Earthrin brings uh, some 25 years of national and international experience working for various non-profit government and, uh, and corporate organizations. But what unites the experience is she's worked on hunger, food, and resilience strategies throughout much of that time. Um, she's a, a champion and a well-known champion of the search for longer-term solutions to food insecurity uh, and hunger. In the past, uh, she, uh, from 2009, I should say, she worked as uh, President Barack Obama's uh, ambassador to the UN uh, Food and Agricultural Organization and head of the uh, UN, US mission to the UN agencies uh, in Rome. Um, I would strongly suggest that you have a look at the biography that she has on the WFP site, uh, an incredibly impressive um, uh, background. Uh, I'm sure you'd agree. Um, she leads an organization which has some 15,000 staff, uh, serves over 100 million uh, beneficiaries globally, operates in 78 uh, countries. It's the world, I think I'm right to say, the world's largest humanitarian uh, uh, aid agency and is um, almost certainly uniquely placed uh, to talk about the challenges of humanitarian space and responding to uh, food insecurity and hunger in some of the world's most dangerous and difficult environments. Um, Ertherin, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today, and uh, the floor is yours, Mark. Thank you so much, and I am going to stand, and I hope everyone can see me if I do. Uh, let me first of all say thank you for that very generous and, and brief introduction. I appreciate that very much. Um, and let me say to all of you, well, thank you very much. London has not let me down. It is yet rainy and cold again here. And so I'm feeling right at home being from Chicago where it's always raining, cold, and snowy. And so if, if the welcome that I've received from the city is any, is any um, compliment to the welcome I'll receive here tonight, I feel at home already. So thank you for attending. As we sit here tonight, we are, of course, mindful of events taking place in Syria um, with its disparate armed groups, ethnic cleavages, and constantly shifting front lines and escalating challenges. These events remind us of the importance of the humanitarian space and our responsibility to protect people living in con conflict zones while we serve and meet the needs of those in the conflict zones. As humanitarians, let me be very clear. We are not involved in the political dialogue. Yet, we respond to the needs of the victims of failed political dialogue. And there are real-world consequences when political dialogue fails and humanitarian space is threatened. 
The question is, what can we do together as a community of humanitarians, academic researchers, practitioners, and people who care about the global community to defend the humanitarian space in our increasingly complex global environment? But before we begin that conversation, let me tell you a little bit about WFP and what we do, for those of you who don't know us. Is anyone in here familiar with the World Food Program? Okay, so I will unabashedly tell you about the World Food Program. The World Food Program, in collaboration with a wide range of partners, including host governments and non-governmental organizations, seeks to ensure that vulnerable populations have access to sufficient quantities of nutritious food. We, our goal at WFP, is to assist the most vulnerable of the world's 870 million chronically undernourished people. Last year, in fact, we, we provided food assistance to 100 million women, men, and children in 80 countries around the world. WFP works on both immediate and long-term food transfer needs by providing food assistance, transfers by building the resilience of communities, and by strengthening national food systems. In other words, we move food in some of the most challenging areas of the world to the most vulnerable poor people in the world to ensure that children don't starve, that we address the issues of chronic malnutrition, and that we support the needs of families in building and using food for work and food for assets to build the community tools that will ultimately ensure, provide some assurance that communities can feed themselves and parents can feed their own children. But we don't act alone. WFP would not be able to address the needs of food insecure populations without our humanitarian partners. And this is important to mention as we talk about overcoming threats to humanitarian space and managing the risk that we face, we all require collective vision and a shared responsibility. Because as you can imagine, meeting the food needs of vulnerable populations is challenging, even in the most peaceful of contexts. When you consider that many of the people that we assist live in fragile states, affected by conflict, and where the degree of complexity involved in providing access to food increases exponentially every day. Think of places like Afghanistan, Syria, Pakistan, Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, Iraq. We have teams working in all of those locations. In countries like these, we often find the greatest need for humanitarian assistance, but is also where we find most difficulty in accessing populations across often fluid front lines and in the midst of complex political dynamics. These are the places where humanitarian space is most threatened and where access is critical to saving lives. You may ask, what do we mean by humanitarian space? This concept is definitely not neatly defined. It often means many things to different people. 
It is not codified in international legal frameworks per se. However, it is broadly rooted in humanitarian principles and international humanitarian law. The term humanitarian space was first documented in writings in the 1990s by the former MSF Medicine Sans Frontiers president, Ronnie Brauman, to de define the environment in which humanitarian activities are implemented without prejudice or interference by political actors. It has since been used to describe the minimum conditions required for the provision of humanitarian assistance to populations in need on the basis of the three principles of humanitarian assistance, humanity, impartiality, and neutrality. The application of these principles is more than a matter of idealism. First, the principle of humanity requires us to address human suffering wherever it is found. Second, the principle of impartiality states that assistance will be guided solely by need and we cannot discriminate on the basis of ethnic origin, nationality, political opinion, gender, race, or religion. Third and finally, the principle of neutrality states very clearly that humanitarian organizations will not privilege any party to a conflict. Upholding these principles is absolutely critical to defending humanitarian space. It is important for us to recognize the origins of these principles, particularly because this year we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, the establishment of the Red Cross and the law, later embodiment of the humanitarian law in the Geneva Conventions were incredible achievements in the history of humanity. For the first time in human history, international norms were developed to guide the conduct of belligerents in conflict. At the same time, humanitarian principles were emerging to guide the conduct of humanitarian actors within these conflicts and outlining the responsibilities to protect and to provide for those in need. But let's think about how much the world has changed in the past 150 years. Take a moment, ask yourself, Many of the conflicts in the world today do not involve standing armies from sovereign states squaring off in a field of battle. If we think about most of the contemporary conflicts, we see that the combatants are often embedded within civilian populations, where front lines may be defined by control over urban neighborhoods and where chains of command may follow traditional clan structure as opposed to military bureaucracies. The number of non-state actors ranging from ethnic militias to international terrorist movements has pro pro proliferated in recent years. As a result, the need to develop innovative means for negotiating with actors who may not even be aware of international legal principles has become a priority for humanitarians. At the same time, certain states have become increasingly suspicious of humanitarians. 
Sometimes humanitarian action is equated with attempts to delegitimize the state. A good example, the expulsion of many of our NGO partners from Darfur following the indictment of Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir by the International Criminal Court is a case in point here. We're also seeing an increasing politicization of humanitarian space as both armed state and non-state actors seek to manipulate humanitarian assistance in line with their own narrowly defined political and security objectives. The refusal to allow access to populations and territory held by opposing armed groups the introduction of administrative obstacles and delays, and the targeted looting of assistance may be used to prevent or hamper the flow of assistance to populations in need. In recent years, many commentators have noted that there may be a blurring of the lines between neutral provision of humanitarian assistance to populations in need and the national security priorities of donor governments. Following the money often leads actors in a conflict to target humanitarians because of their perceived allegiance to a particular government who provides the funding support for the humanitarian assistance. A good example, Somalia, and the challenges that the uh, Al-Shabaab believed that the World Food Program was too close to the United States. The journal of humanitarian assistance suggested that the threat to humanitarian action has been most pronounced where major humanitarian donors have also implemented counterinsurgency campaigns. Think about that one for a moment. Humanitarian assistance being equated with the winning of hearts and minds. As a consequence, the humanitarian space may be further constrained and there can be increased risk of violence against humanitarians. The threat of violence is a key concern for the defense of humanitarian space. The number of violent attacks against aid workers has more than tripled since 1997. The number of aid workers that were killed in the line of duty almost doubled and the number of kidnappings has more than tripled in the same period. Over two-thirds of these attacks were committed in small number of countries, including Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, Pakistan, DRC, and Iraq. These are the very places where the need for assistance is often the greatest, where we find that the humanitarian space is the most constrained and where we face the greatest risk to the security of those who work to deliver the support and those we are there to protect. In addition, greater demands on the wider UN system present an additional unique challenge to humanitarians. Over the last two decades, the UN has undertaken a series of institutional innovations to promote greater coherence in the organization's conflict and post-conflict engagements. We have what's known in the UN as integrated missions, where you have political um, political agencies and humanitarian agencies working under one leadership team. 
This has resulted in greater cooperation across its political, security, development, and humanitarian pillars, and there is now a comprehensive body of integration-related policies and planning tools that the UN organizations should observe, and as a result, maintaining the distinction between humanitarian and peacekeeping elements of the UN systems is becoming an ever more significant challenge. A good example of the real world challenges involved in maintaining the space between humanitarian and political actors is the Democratic Republic of Congo. On November 15th, last year, 2012, fighting erupted between the National Army of the DRC and the rebels affiliated with the M23 insurgency group around the provincial capital of Goma in North Kivu. Although the UN had a peacekeeping operation in the area, MINUSCO, their forces were outnumbered and unable to provide protection to many of the civilians caught between the opposing forces. Within hours of the start of the fighting, a camp for internally displaced persons near Goma with a population of 60,000 was completely empty. The people scattered into the woods. In South Kivu, another 130,000 people were displaced. During this fighting, 160 people were killed. The M23 occupied Goma for 11 days. The outcry was immediate and widespread. There was demand for a UN peacekeeping mission to offer greater protection to beneficiaries and to the humanitarians. In March of 2013, the Security Council authorized the formation of an intervention brigade which was mandated to take offensive action to end the conflict in eastern Congo, in eastern DRC. The more aggressive profile of this UN intervention brigade carried certain risk for humanitarian actions, particularly for UN agencies and their partners, as perceptions of neutrality by the M23 were compromised or may have been compromised by this new force. This is where things became complicated for humanitarian agencies. In the context of UN integration, WFP and other UN agencies depend on MINUSCO, the peacekeeping mission, to provide protections to civilians and to humanitarians to ensure that we can perform the work. But the principle of neutrality states very clearly that humanitarian actors do not take sides in conflict. However, under the new mandate, the Intervention Brigade is now actively pursuing M23 rebels. And as a result, when they're traveling with the humanitarians, the combatants suddenly see the humanitarians as no longer a neutral party. Yet, if we don't afford ourselves the protection, we're putting lives at risk. What do we do? We must take some concrete and pragmatic steps to ensure that armed groups and civilian population perceive WFP and its partners as neutral. In a place as vast and as complex, and might I say as dangerous, as the Eastern Congo, 
this is not an easy or simple task. We're doing as much as we can to address these concerns to ensure that we we maintain access to the food insecure population that depend upon us because many of them have no means of earning income and their only access to food is the food that we provide through WFP. So we're working with the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operation to determine ways to ensure that humanitarian agencies are perceived as clearly distinct from the UN Intervention Brigade. As a first step, humanitarian actors have established separate public information and advocacy mechanisms. We are also engaging directly with communities to ensure that civilians are able to distinguish humanitarian elements of the UN system from MINUSCO. We have also sought to reduce the visible association of our activities from those of the peacekeeping mission. And needless to say, the WFP staff wears bright blue hats that say WFP and vests that say WFP, and they work with the, UNA, the, the NGO partners who also wear all of their paraphernalia as well to ensure that they can be easily identified as the people providing humanitarian assistance and not part of the political or, mil- or military um, agencies of the UN. Ensuring the perception of humanitarians as different from MONUSCO is now more important than ever. In performing this work, we need to always remember the humanitarian principles are not ends in and of themselves. Rather, humanitarian principles are the most effective means for protecting the humanitarian space and ensuring access to the population in need. So a basic philosophy that we at WFP use in making the decision of what do we do in these situations is a principled practice of humanitarian principles. Principled because WFP upholds the dictates of the international humanitarian law and is guided by the three core principles of humanity, impartiality, and neutrality. Practice because our operations in the theater of conflicts are rarely simple. We must develop solutions that are appropriate to both the moral and actual complexity of a given situation while maintaining the reputation of the organization and successfully performing the life-saving work that is needed by those we serve. But the tension between the need to deliver life-saving assistance and to assert humanitarian principles is one of the most significant challenges that we face today in WFP. There is no rule book to guide us in striking the right balance. It is a constant effort that plays out every day in our organizations, sometimes requiring my engagement with heads of state and opinion leaders across the global community, but more often than not, it requires the judgment, the creativity, as well as the diplomatic skills of our staff on the front line on the ground who are making decisions that in many cases are ad hoc because they make the decisions based upon uh, ever-changing facts in the places where they work. You could say this is a tension is a balance between theory 
and reality. Pakistan offers a good illustration of how this tension plays out and the challenges when things go wrong. In Pakistan, WFP has tried to balance threats to humanitarian space with the need to assist the populations in conflict. On Monday, October 5th, 2009, at almost a quarter past noon, a young man, disguised as a soldier, approached WFP's office in a residential district of Islamabad. He knew that security was extremely tight. The outer security post is manned by armed police and private security guards. So he waved to the frontier security guard corps as he walked past, and remember, he's wearing one of their uniforms. And to avoid the mandatory screening process at the main gate, he asked for a glass of water and then requested to use the bathroom. He was admitted to the side gate as he entered the lobby and as he walks, the office explodes. Five of our staff were dead immediately and scores more were injured and hospitalized, some for very long periods of time. We have one young man who is still undergoing numerous surgeries as a result of his injuries. Fast forward. April 17, 2010, less than a year later, WFP beneficiaries are crowded at a distribution point in Kohat, west of Peshawar, in northern Pakistan. Two explosive devices go off. Many beneficiaries are injured in the blast. Thankfully, no one was killed. We later learn that the attack, that attack, was not directed at WFP or the UN, but many of the beneficiaries were clearly shaken and frightened and afraid to again come to access food from WFP. One could argue wrong place, wrong time, but it impacted our reputation and our ability to deliver service. As you can see, these are real issues for our operations because we operate in a global environment in which increasing level of violence against humanitarian staffs and the populations we serve represent one of the most significant challenges to the humanitarian space. At the same time, we have an obligation to prevent and alleviate hunger and must weigh these obligations against concerns related to respect for life, health, and dignity. Then and now, the choice is difficult. The choice of whether to evacuate based on security concerns and humanitarian principles alone or to adjust our risk profile and find some way to stay and deliver. In Pakistan, the answer was simple. We stayed and we continued to deliver. But to protect our staff, we moved to new offices where we could better manage the security risk. To protect our beneficiaries, we established new approaches to increase safety at distribution sites. We also developed guidelines for partners to support appropriate site selection. We instituted several levels of security perimeters at distribution sites, 
And most importantly, we establish a communication and complaints desk that allows beneficiaries to notify us directly of potential security concerns, giving them more of a sense of safety about coming to WFP to receive benefits and support. We also use this information that we receive from beneficiaries and the new communication tools with beneficiaries to conduct distributions based on community feedback, respecting the safety and the dignity of the people we we serve and reinforcing the perception of neutrality and commitment to those we serve. As a result of these measures, without resistance, and without hampering our humanitarian space, that space was, was opened up. And by the end of 2010, we were able to reach over 8.8 million people at a time when massive floods swept through the north of the country. WFP continues to prevent and to alleviate hunger in Pakistan. But we are doing everything we can to reduce the risk of violence against our staff and the people who count on us to meet their food needs. Finally, let me turn for a moment to the situation in Syria, a topic that is clearly dominating the attention of the international community at the moment. In mid-2011, the global community watched the first shaky amateur videos of the civil war coming out of Syria. You'll recall pictures of empty streets and smoke rising from behind apartment buildings in the distance. By the end of the year, hundreds of thousands of refugees had crossed the border into neighboring countries. At the same time, we knew that the majority of people in need were still inside Syria. And as the front lines changed, as opposition groups began their offensive towards Damascus and Aleppo, and as the government launched its counteroffensive, we were ramping up our distributions. In 2012, we were serving less than 100,000 people in, in March of 2012. I signed an amendment to the program in April of 2012 to increase to 250,000 people. By the end of October, we will serve 4 million people inside Syria. So as the conflict further evolved, so did the complexities of providing food assistance. There were still people in opposition-held areas, primarily near the border of Turkey, that we could not reach because we could not access them from within Syria. Recognizing this need, some called for humanitarian agencies, including WFP, to consider new options, including cross-border operations. Yet WFP is unable to take unilateral action as it is required as a UN organization to recognize the sovereignty of the Syrian state and we must respect that sovereignty and they refuse to give us permission to cross the border to where we know there are people trapped at the border who are in need of assistance. But set aside the the questions of legality for the moment. What would be the likely consequence of a decision by WFP to undertake a cross-border operation. 
by negotiating access with the government and opposition groups, we are able, as I noted, to feed 3 million people this month and 4 million next month. If we lose that ability to continue to have negotiations with the regime by performing cross-border action, it will limit our ability to serve 3 million or in 4 million in October. So do we support the 50,000 and jeopardize our ability to support the 4 million? I leave that question for you. <laughs> Adopting an approach of principal practice means that this position will continue to change with the changing circumstances. The situation will evolve as factors and considerations on the ground consider to continue to alter. WFP today provides assistance in all 14 governments of Syria. For the moment, and looking at the totality of the humanitarian response, we are working every day to uphold the principles of impartiality, and we are working to reach the largest numbers of those in need in this very difficult circumstances. Yet tonight, as more amateur videos emerge, the situation in Syria continues to deteriorate, and the humanitarian crisis continues to escalate. Inside Syria, more areas are becoming in inaccessible. The upsurge in violence and proliferation of checkpoints around major cities has affected the pace of food dispatches. In fact, in the areas of rural Damascus, in one particular area known as Matamia, we have been trying for 10 months to get into this area where we know there are people in need of assistance, but we can't. In the area in El Hasakai, which is in the northwest corner of Syria, where the Syrian Kurds occupy the area, we know that the, our inability to access that area, because we can't get through the region of Deir Zor, which is controlled by the Al-Nusras, which so the the area outside Damascus is controlled by the by the government, by the regime. The area in Deir Zor is controlled by Al-Nusra, who's fighting with the Free Syrian Army, and they won't allow us into El Hasakai. So people ask me who's to blame. There's a, there's some there's enough implicity to go around. So what can we do as a community, as thought leaders, who safeguard the humanitarian space? We must resist every effort to politicize humanitarian space. The most important issue before us is the encroachment of these differing political agendas. Humanitarian action must be delinked from the security agendas of state and non-state armed actors. And the only way to accomplish this is through dialogue and through political solutions. Through dialogue, programming targeted to meet the needs of victims, advocacy for all, we avoid the perceptions of partiality over forcing one side against another. Asserting humanitarian principles and the right of populations to access assistance requires constant dialogue at all levels, from the Security Council, the General Assembly, host governments, and the, leader, and the leaders of rebel groups. This dialogue and understanding are the most effective means for defending humanitarian space. 
We can also examine the transfer of risk in humanitarian operations more closely. Humanitarians are increasingly required to provide assistance in, persistent, in these persistent intractable conflicts where security risks are incredibly high and where the international community often has a limited capacity to resolve the conflict through negotiation. So in this situation, there is a need for greater share of the risk across the entire humanitarian community, including member states, donors, UN agency, NGO partners, and others. When these risks are shared, when we have greater transparency, when we have greater communication, and most important, when we have realistic expectations about what can be achieved, we can work in these hostile conditions. In these challenging situations, if we are fully to defend humanitarian space, we must always advocate for and protect the lives of the people who are out there serving and saving lives, as well as advocate for and protect those in need. In certain parts of the world, there is virtual impunity for violence against aid workers and no interest too often in the protection of civilians. Too often they're seen as collateral and but necessary damage. We must identify appropriate methods in fora and fora in which international legal mechanisms can be used to bring perpetrators of crimes that detrimentally impact our ability to provide humanitarian assistance that these individuals are brought to justice. Greater deterrence would not only serve to provide greater protection to those providing humanitarian assistance, but also as a direct consequence would serve to ensure access to humanitarian assistance by vulnerable populations during conflicts. This will only occur if governments and political actors demand unfettered humanitarian space with a willingness to use the political and legal tools to ensure we carve out and protect the space necessary to serve those in need. So, in closing, ponder another thought. Humanitarian space does not exist in and of itself. Like many concepts, it is theoretical construct with a real-world application. We, the global community, created it out of necessity, and it is very much ours to defend. If we fail to defend the humanitarian space from the political interference of either state or non-state actors, and if we fail to assert the right of populations to assistance, we fail humanity. We cannot accept this. We must not accept this, accept this as the only way forward. We must be steadfast in our determination to reach every man, woman, and child who has the right to receive humanitarian assistance. Thank you once again for your time and attention. I'm happy to take any questions. Uh, 
Ursula, um, thank you very much indeed for a, a wonderful introduction to uh, the, the problems of maintaining and uh, 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 an opening humanitarian space. Um, as your chair, I'm going to introduce a couple of um, rules in terms of the questions. The first one is, can we try and keep the questions um, short? The second one is, can we try and make sure the question has a question uh, as well? Uh, there is a tendency in uh, academic institutions at times to um, perhaps uh, keep the questions um, sort of long and convoluted. So if we could try and uh, abide by those, that would be great. Um, when I... Uh, point to you, and it's your turn to ask the question. Can you introduce yourself? Um, it's always best to know your enemy. Uh, and uh, for Earthrin's sake, if you could say who you are and which institution you're from, if you're from an institution, um, that would be wonderful. Um, I'm going to abuse the chairman's right uh, and ask the first question. Um, it's um, it's not going to be that short, uh, but there is a question in there. Um, but please do as I say, not as I do. The, the question is, um, WFP has faced controversy in the past uh, with the diversion of um, food supplies. Uh, last year in Somalia, there was significant media coverage of diversion of food supplies. Now, in lots of ways, this is inevitable in these sorts of violent and difficult uh, uh, environments. And the political economy of conflict creates huge incentives uh, around uh, those within the conflict uh, setting, um, which go against uh, the imperative to deliver humanitarian assistance uh, on the basis of need alone. We've also got donors who are constrained by uh, the financial crisis and who are increasingly stressing value for money uh, agendas. And I wondered if you could say uh, a little bit about what WFP is doing in terms of organizational change, policy changes, um, to address both the problem of food aid diversion and the problem of value for money, uh, which are two sides of the same complex uh, uh, problem. Well, thank you very much for that question because as as I started my mandate as executive director of WFP a bit over a year ago in April of 2012, one of the areas that we're working on is how do we make a good organization, WFP, a great organization. And we, and instead of me coming in with the vision, I convened some of the leadership across the organization and brought them together. And they came back with a plan of action that we've been titled Fit for Purpose. How do we create a WFP that is fit for purpose of ending hunger in the world? And one of the of the uh, areas of focus has been on how do we address the issues of monitoring and evaluation and reporting that provide the transparency of, of our implementation activities at the country level to the satisfaction not just of donors but to all of our stakeholders because we're 100% voluntarily funded. We raise approximately four, the, last year we raised a, a bit under $4 billion and we reached $3.9 billion yesterday uh, for 2013. Um, so we're on track to raise $4.2 billion for this year. And we get that because donors believe that when they invest in us, that the money that they invest will ensure that we provide food to the targeted population. And so that reputation and that credibility is key to our continued ability to operate and perform. So in very practical terms, we're doing things like hiring more monitors and more um, 
and more uh, evaluation staff at country level who can create, who can provide the uh, reporting, the third-party reporting that is necessary to ensure that we are achieving the goals that we set out to achieve. We're also changing our systems in the organization to ensure that we have the, the technology available in the field to provide for the appropriate accounting for all of the food that we distribute. I should say that even in complex emergencies, less than 1% of our food is diverted. And, but it makes for a really good news story when it happens. But I tell our staff all the time that every diversion is, is a, is a, is a, can have detrimental impact on our reputation. So while we can put the tools in place to ensure that we minimize the risk of diversion, which is what we're doing, we also are having more conversations with donors to un- so that they understand that when we are operating in some of these areas that we've been talking about today, that the possibility of diversion is real. And because there are bad guys out there. And the bad guys will impact and, and, and threaten our operations. And so while we can work to minimize, things happen in bad places. And so when there are challenges, we immediately report it to our donors. So rather than having them read about it in The Guardian, they hear about it from us when we have problems. And um, have we had some problems? I'll give you some examples because you may have heard about them. In Syria, um, we had a situation where we had a truck, and it was one truck, that was diverted. And El Nusra then distributed our food with a sign that said, from the generosity of El Nusra. Um, And we then began negotiations with El Nusra and with the FSA the Free Syrian Army, to ensure that that didn't happen again. Because we can't take food into Deir Ezzor where people need it if that food is going to be diverted. So we, we respond immediately, but those challenges will occur. So we recognize responsibility of providing value for money, being as efficient and effective as possible, but we operate in the real world. And so even with all the systems that we put in place and all the mitigation, things will happen, but then we communicate. Thank you. Um, Okay, we'll take two questions, three questions simultaneously, and they will be, uh, in the interest of fairness, uh, your question, uh, your question, and the lady at the back there. Her question. If we can take the question first, uh, and then Elthrim will decide which ones she's going to avoid. (laughs) Hi, thank you for your talk. Uh, my name's Adel, and I'm a former student here at LSE. Um, what role is WFP playing in the post-2015 development agenda, and how would you assess WFP's role in eradicating or trying to eradicate severe hunger and malnutrition? Okay. Thank you. Hi, my name's Hanan Shahata, not affiliated with any particular organization for the purpose of today, but I was just wondering about your involvement in Palestine, particularly the Gaza Strip. It's been under an illegal Israeli siege now for many years, and um, by land, air, and sea, and I was just wondering, with 90% of the water unfit for human consumption and so many kids suffering from malnutrition and stunted growth, what the WFP was doing in, mm-hmm. in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
My name is Vanya. I work at UNICEF. Um, you spoke briefly about cooperation with other agencies, and I was just wondering whether you could elaborate on how this is actually done on the ground in such um, situations, because there are huge challenges. These are vast organizations, as I'm, as I'm sure you're aware. Mm-hmm. And in terms of cooperation, particularly with NGOs that are not UNICEF or UNHCR are ones that are bound by the UN's principles. Mm-hmm. How do you go about solving the challenges of working with NGOs that perhaps have other agendas as well? Okay, that's three for me. I like all three of those questions. <laughs> uh, let me start with the post-2015 agenda. Um, as you know, the where do we go as a global community in post-2015? What are the goals that we as a global community should embrace as part of the post-2015 agenda that are both um, sustainability goals as well as um, development goals has been a major conversation across the global community. There was a food security regional conference that was held in Madrid in May of this year. And out of that conference came a, a goal that we should have a standalone goal for the elimination of food insecurity and, and crime malnutrition uh, in line with the Secretary General's Zero Hunger Challenge. Um, And WFP is working to achieve that standalone goal. Um, the, we were very concerned because there were some suggestions that hunger and chronic nutrition should be included as an indicator of um, poverty elimination. And our concern was that if it became an indicator only, we would lose the public will that is necessary to continue the investments that are required for us to make the difference in, um, on these issues. And so we were very pleased when the Secretary General's high-level um, panel came back with food, chronic, uh, food insecurity and chronic malnutrition as a suggested standalone goal. So we go into this, the General Assembly next week, um, and I will be presenting, and so will the other members of the Rome-based agencies, FAO, EFAT, um, on why we should have a standalone goal. And so all of your voices, we need them on this. This is very important. When it gets into a debate in the General Assembly, it's very possible the General Assembly can come back with a very different interpretation, and we can be forced back into an indicator, but uh, that would not be in the best interest of the hungry people in the world. So let your voices be known. There's a website where you can do that, and we appreciate it. Palestine. I was just in Palestine in June. WFP is a very large program in Palestine. In fact, our Palestine program is, is on, in WFP terms, well-funded. We provide vouchers because the problem in Palestine is not the availability of food, it's the access to food because so many people in, the, in Palestine do not have the ability to earn income because of the challenges that we all know so well. Um, so we have a voucher program, and we had the first electronic voucher program in WFP was implemented in Palestine. Uh, we also have a program where we work with small businesses in Palestine because we do have some food distribution, particularly to the Bedouins, that we, where we're providing support. And we purchase that food, particularly palm oil, from Palestinian um, 
farmers and manufacturers. So, again, we're dealing with the, consequen- the, the consequences of failed political situation, but we are working there. Um, thank you. UNICEF, great partner. Um, we, when we talk about chronic malnutrition, we can't do with what we do without UNICEF um, and without WHO and the other UN organizations. Um, great examples, we have a new program where we are working to, with UNICEF to target the same schools in, in countries where we operate together to ensure that we're not just providing food because when we provide food, we provide greater access to schools and we increase attendance, but we don't increase learning in schools. UNICEF has programs that increase learning in schools. So if we target our programs into the same schools, we can have better nutritional outcomes as well as increasing the access to school, particularly for girls' education, but we can also increase the educational factors that are so important to change lives. And so we're working very um, hand in glove with UNICEF and that when we talk about the issue of chronic malnutrition, UNICEF supports severe acute malnutrition. We support moderately acute malnutrition. It's the difference between wasting and stunting. If we're doing what we're supposed to do to address the issues of moderate acute malnutrition, then we hopefully won't get to the situation of severe acute where we actually lose children. So we, again, working hand in glove. And we can't, neither of our organizations could perform this work without NGOs. So we are trying to change the relationship with NGOs where we move from them being implementing partners to us for us, but to being actual and, and real partners in program planning as well as in program implementation, which means that we, we are changing the dialogue at the highest level of the NGO community, both international and with national NGOs, where we bring them into Rome, and instead of us presenting to them, we have them present to us. How can we work better together? And then we publish it. So we started this for the first time last year. It was extremely well received, and we will host another one of these engagements at the end of October. Okay, time for another three questions. Um, start with us. Um, the gentleman there. Uh, the gentleman here and the lady there. Thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Um, my name is Paul Banura, London Metropolitan University. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you for the commendable job that you do at the organization. Um, my question is actually really a concern um, from a legal perspective. Uh, I was just wondering, do you actually think that there is enough laws on the international um, laws scene that actually would enable um, to stop the, the, the unfettered uh, access to, to access of um, humanitarian aid to the people that need it? And if not, do you think that maybe um, there should be a call for conventions that would actually able to, uh, be able to, um, to push that forward, to advance the, the interests of the organization? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Phil Thornton. I'm actually with uh, Emerging Markets Newspaper, so uh, my job is to, is to follow the money, as you put it. Um, uh, you mentioned some figures for financing, and I was just wondering if you give some indication as to whether those numbers are enough to do what you need to do, and if not, how do you fancy your chances of reaching out to finance ministers and development ministers who are under pressure from the euro crisis, austerity, everything else? 
Hi, um, Ruth Quinn from the European Interagency Security Forum. Um, I'm wondering if you are finding that counterterrorism legislation, which precludes access or, or negotiation with certain named groups or individuals, are having an impact on both WFP programs and the partner organizations that you're working with. Okay, so you let the questions get harder as the night goes on. But uh, let's start with the first one, legal. Uh, I'm a lawyer, so I can tell you we have more than enough laws. The challenge is ensuring that we enforce the legal provisions that we have uh, and, and the conventions that are already in place. The Geneva Convention is very clear about the operating space and what's necessary and what are the principles. Um, I was told something yesterday that I have staff looking into for me, is that the security Security Council's failure to issue a resolution demanding humanitarian space is the first time since Vietnam that the Security Council has not issued a, such a resolution. Um, that's an interesting situation if it's true. Um, the, the, but it, why, the reason I bring it up, even though I can't substantiate it, uh, is because we're in a situation where we know as a global community what's the right thing to do. It's just having the political courage and the political will to do it. So I'll stop there before I get political, because I don't do politics, I do humanitarian. Um, <laughs> finance, how do we prioritize? It's not easy. We, every year, we work with the country teams. We build our budgets from the bottom up. And country, the country teams in the 80-plus countries where we operate um, send forth to the Rome office a needs budget. Last, the, for 2014, our needs budget totaled $6.7 billion. We expect to raise $4.2 billion in 2014. That means that there's things that we can't do. How do we prioritize? We don't, unfortunately, the donors prioritize more than we do, and they tell us how they want their money to be used. Uh, but when we are prioritizing, what we prioritize is saving lives and livelihoods first. Um, which means that things like the resilience building programs that will help us move um, the most vulnerable from situations of food insecurity to stability, we don't have the resources to do that far too often. So how do we respond? What we're looking at is we depend upon the traditional donors, and the traditional donors are very generous. You can't raise $4.2 billion without a significant amount of generosity from around the global community. But we know that we need more donors from, at, from governments, uh, so we're working with the, the OIC to encourage more of the GCC donors to to contribute. We are working with countries that are emerging economies like Brazil, India, and China to find new ways and innovative ways for them to support our programs. But we're also looking at the private sector and innovative financing tools that we hope that to launch over the next several years that will begin to give us more of a sustainable and a predictable stream of funding. So it, it's a challenge, but you know, 10 years ago, WFP was a $2 billion a year organization. So we've grown and doubled over the past 10 years. But think about this, next year, 
are, when we raise and spend $4.2 billion of it, we're anticipating that at least $1.1 to $1.5 billion of that is going to go directly into Syria. And so it's become a quarter of our operation when two years ago it was one of our smallest operations. So that means that there's going to be prioritization and it's made against other programs around the world. And so one of the reasons that I spend so much time traveling is to ensure that people understand we can't prioritize one hungry child against another. That uh, we need as a global community to continue to recognize the responsibilities that we have to all of those who require our assistance around the world. Counterterrorism. Let me jump right into that one. Um, I, I'm, I'm from my from my um, introduction. You heard that I was ambassador for the United States, and so when we were dealing with the issues of Somalia. Um, and the counterterrorism laws that are now on the books in the United States were directly impacting the, particularly the NGOs' engagement in Somalia because of uh, the fear of um, actions being brought because of the possibility of serving in Al-Shabaab areas. Um, it does it, or is it? Does it become a, a hurdle or a problem? It could, but the good part about it, and, and with the Obama administration, we have regular conversations with senior officials within the administration who work every day to ensure that while we abide by the counterterrorism laws, of course, that they do not detrimentally impact our ability to serve, nor do they impact the ability of the NGOs to work with us. And so this is a challenging area with, for us. It's a new area that's still evolving, but uh, I think that the, the good part about it is that the global community wants to ensure that the counterterrorism laws um, affect the outcomes that they're trying to achieve and not detrimentally impacting our ability and the ability of humanitarians to perform. So it's a tough area. Okay, time for three more questions. I'm, I'm going to leap in as well. I'm, I'm going to ask you, um, before I pick uh, the bearded gentleman, there, uh, the gentleman with the, I think it's a red uh, top there, so the colorblind individual, um, and uh, the lady here. But before I ask you to give your questions, um, you, you refuse to uh, uh, prioritize between two starving children, which is mm -hmm. something I think we can all agree with. Um, but there are huge differences in the funding between crises. Some crises are, uh, are ignored completely. Some crises receive significantly more per capita uh, money than other crises. Um, what are your responses to try and um, ensure that crises don't become aid orphans? Mm -hmm. um, but let's take the other questions starting over. Hello, my name is uh, Raphael from uh, Junior Chamber International in London. Sorry. Um, from my understanding, the, the WFP provides um, a lot of food in, in places where there is, it's a situation of uh, emergency and situation of crisis that, where the food is needed immediately. At the same time, it is said by some economists that um, sometimes the, the food provided by the WFP competes with, uh, in terms of pricing, with the local producers or the local sellers. So what do you do to avoid that and maybe the, the program that you implemented in Palestine in something that could be replicated in another place to avoid that this happens? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. There's a gentleman. Oh, we've got it right. Well done. Uh, here. Daniel from McKinsey & Company. Um, 
I was very interested by your comments about prioritization. Um, for WFP, where you are able to prioritize, what ex extent does at the moment and should cost play a role in your prioritization? Should what? Cost of delivering oh. food services. Mm -hmm. Good evening. My name is Alexandra. I'm with ALNAP. Um, I, my question somewhat relates to Rafael's, um, but I wanted to ask, or if you could please elaborate a little bit about innovation within WFP. I was particularly interested in how the organization has been transferring towards cash-based programming and how the split is mm -hmm. nowadays. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, prioritize. How do we respond to ensure crisis don't become aid orphans? Um, the and and I, being here in the UK is not why I'm saying this, but because it's true is why I'm saying this. The UK is is one of our major donors, and they provide funds to us into what we call our our multilateral fund, where we get to choose where we um, invest those dollars. And what that does is ensures that where there are challenges and we are not receiving targeted uh, earmarked donor support for those challenges, we can then determine that we should put money there. Um, Central African Republic, until, most, until very recently, was, was a good example of that. Uh, the DRC is often an example of that. Um, We've had situations sometimes where Palestine's been an example, um, and, and I could go around the globe. But um, I, the Iraqi refugees in Iran are, <laughs> are a good example. Um, and so we, we move money. But we also are put into a position where we reduce the kilocalories that we distribute. Um, we always try to provide 2,100 kilocalories per person per day in our monthly rations. And there are people who this is what they're really good at, is determining how much wheat, how much, um, how much lentils, how much sugar, et cetera, will we'll provide for a family of X 2,100 kilocalories per day. We've been in situations where we've had to cut those rations in half in order to extend to the number of people that we need to feed for in a particular situation. This happens, unfortunately, on a regular basis. Um, and it's, it is not something that we enjoy doing, but it's the reality when there's just not enough money and there are more people that you need to reach. The question is, do I not feed you and feed you, or do I both feed both of you and feed you both a little less? And so that's what we do. Um, and and, and, um, and in fact, in, in Syria, um, we before the money started coming in, and on a more regular basis, we cut rations to 1,700 kilocalories um, in order to ensure that we could get to 3 million people. But now, you know, we're providing wheat flour. And also, in, in those situations, we make the determination of what we can, how many kilocalories we can cut. Uh, also by, are there vegetable gardens that people can grow? Is there other areas that even the most vulnerable can find some food that they can supplement our food with? Um, I am always amazed at how in some of the most destitute places in the world people cope. 
Uh, but what we try to avoid is negative coping strategies, where people sell their assets, uh, the minimal assets that they have in order to feed their children. So tough situations, tough decisions. Um, food provided by WFP competing with local food. Not anymore. Uh, we're, we're getting, we, when we talk about moving from food aid to food assistance, when we were just providing food for many years, WFP is a 50-year-old organization. For 45 of our 50 years, when there was a crisis, WFP's answer was to bring in food. When food availability was not always the problem. Uh, oftentimes, food access was the problem. Was, there was food available in the market, but the most vulnerable, the poor people, could not access it because they didn't have the resources. And so we've moved to cash, a cash and voucher program. Uh, and we are expanding our cash and voucher program to, to uh, ensure that we are providing access to those who can't, uh, can't um, purchase food, but we're also supporting smallholder farmers then by the, giving the, the poorest in the community the resources to purchase in local markets. But we're going one step further. We're also, last year we purchased approximately $1.1 billion in food, uh, in commodities. Uh, 97%? 77%, I'm going to get that number right, 77% of that was purchased in the developing countries, which means that we are supporting markets and farmers in developing countries. Our next step on that is that for 2014, our goal is that 10% of that 77%, we want to ensure that we are also purchasing from smallholder farmers. So we're moving beyond just how do we provide more food? This is another, this is innovation for us. It's not just how do you provide food, how do you fill a stomach, but how do you ensure that you're supporting communities and you're building the, um, the economic opportunities for smallholder farmers. Too often what we do in, in the developing world is we work with smallholder farmers and we increase their yields and the quality of their yields, but we don't provide a market for them. So you've increased it for one year. They can't do it again the next year because they have no money to invest in the seeds and tools that are necessary for the next harvest. But if they can sell to WFP, then we're beginning to change the outcomes for those smallholders. And that's a big part of what we're trying to do very differently. So it's not just about the tools that we are, when we talk about innovation, it's how we support those that we serve as part of our, of our responses. Um, on the question of um, prioritizing when cost is an issue, which is why we, yes, we do. Uh, every time food goes up it by 2%, it costs us another $200 million. Uh, and I'm looking at staff. Whenever I say numbers, I always look over. Am I right? <laughs> uh, to purchase uh, food on a monthly basis. So what we try to do is we buy very basic commodities. I get complaints every place I go. People say, can you give us more vegetables? You know, how about some meat? Um, we can't afford it. 
We provide grains and lentils and oil and salt and sugar and um, you know, very basic. We're very proud of the fact that in Syria we are providing pasta in some cases because we've been able to find pasta really inexpensively. So if we prioritize on what we buy um, and where we buy it. We try to buy, as I said, in, um, in developing countries, but we also don't want to in detrimentally impact markets by purchasing in developing countries when we can force prices up, which means that food becomes even more inaccessible for, for food becomes inaccessible for even more people. So then we're forced back out into the international market. And when we are forced back into the international market to buy food, we try to buy as competitively as possible. There are, we have people who, who are amazing at this work, and they are like commodity buyers at the... At, at any of the exchanges where they sit there and they watch prices and they make determinations of where they can buy and what prices and how do they get move how, how can they move it, move it at the least expensive cost in order to ensure that we can feed more people so this is a big part of the internal operations of WFP WFP is the logistics plus logistics cluster lead for the UN system and we, we we're in that position for a reason it's because we have a monster of a logistics and procurement team. And part of what they do is ensuring that they get value for money day in and day out when they're buying commodities. Um, on the issues of innovation, I talked a bit about some of the programs. One of the things that's very exciting about what we're doing on the cash and voucher side, on the, and I like to say more vouchers than cash because the, we, are, we have a very particular mandate to provide food assistance, uh, not to provide income support. And so while there's some who would say cash is always better than vouchers, vouchers, when donors give us money, they give us to us with the intent that that money is going to be used to support hunger and nutrition needs. And so vouchers ensure that you can, you can only use it for food. Um, but what we're, doing, what we're doing inside WFP right now is we are investing money into building the platform that will allow us to through our, our um, market analysis tools to determine what's needed on the ground and by whom, and to turn that on. If it's, if it's right immediately following a crisis, blanket food is usually what's needed. If, if it's a hurricane, a tsunami, a, a, a conflict like Syria where the markets aren't operating, you need to get food in there. But then also to have the ability to identify when we need to change to another modality. And then providing the resources for to support that modality because we'll already have the contracts with the banks or other financial institutions with the NGOs to do then do distributions of whether it is cash or vouchers. And then uh, long term because that's how we want to think that we then have a targeted um, population list of those who are in need so that when the government can provide the safety net programs we can then turn our list over to them so that they can meet the food assistance needs of that targeted population through safety net programs. So we're looking at this very long term. How do we build the global system that will ensure that we can provide the right tools at the right time to the people in need. 
So we're making an enormous amount of progress in a very, uh, in, in, in very fast order. And it's primarily because technology is far ahead of our thinking on this, and we just need to adapt that technology to what we're doing and the work we're performing inside WFP. Okay, we've got time for one more after questions, uh, and we'll start with the lady here. Uh, we'll there. Oh, perfect, we've got three. Uh, the lady here is next, and the gentleman there is uh, last but by no means least. So. Um, in Sri Lanka, World Food Programme official was uh, reprimanded for, in 2008, for commenting on the uh, Somalia-like condition there in the north. And then in 2009, the boss had to apologize to the government. And in 2009, UNICEF uh, official was expelled because he commented on the undernourishment of the children. This goes on. And last year also, WFP program uh, uh, produced a report of undernutrition there. But uh, the government is, have, has got a lot of uh, res uh, severe restrictions on UN bodies, ICRC, and all the other NGOs. What do you do then, please? Okay, first question. Um, and over here, please. Hello, um, Hillary Stauffer. I'm a veteran of a couple of UN agencies myself. Um, I had a really uh, wonder if you could briefly walk us through the, the larger question of access. For example, um, there a couple years ago in Burma, Myanmar, there was a big cyclone. And at the time, the government wasn't very open to outside intervention, and there was a a problem getting um, humanitarian assistance on the ground. So when a situation like that occurs, is there a, a protocol in place or do you talk to regional authorities to try and influence people? Or if there is a, I'm sure that's not an easy answer, but um, and if you could touch upon that, that'd be really enlightening. Thank you. Edward Davey, ex-LSE. I'd be interested to know which thinkers on politics, international relations, um, humanitarianism, food assistance have most influenced you, either politicians or academics or, or both. <laughs> Can I suggest a <laughs> uh, So you guys thought you'd end the evening by making it as difficult for me as possible, right? <laughs> uh, Let's Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is a tough situation, like as many of the situations are, where you have challenging governments. And um, our responsibility is, as a UN organization, uh, and the UN is a member state organization, and Sri Lanka is one of those member states, is for us to work with those members, with, with those governments, to ensure that we can provide assistance and support. And when we can't, to ensure that we have the appropriate dialogues with those who can. For example, if we can't get in, can an NGO get in? Um, Somalia is another good example of this outside of Sri Lanka, where when WFP was expelled from the southern and southeast corridor of um, of Somalia, we worked with the NGO community and supported their access in to and, and provision of resources so that they could provide food. Our goal is to ensure that regardless of what happens with the governments, that we continue to try and find ways of providing assistance to those in need. 
And I'm not going to say that I have the perfect answer for Sri Lanka because it's a it's a tough it's a, it's been a tough situation for a lot of years. On uh, Myanmar and uh, Myanmar is changing, thank goodness. Um, and um, we just had an exercise in the, in in um, the UN of emergency response between all the UN agencies, where all the emergency coordinators and the uh, executives of the organizations work together in a what-if situation. And one of the questions in the what-if situation was there's been a hurricane and we, all of our satellite data was telling us X number of people were impacted but the government refused to allow us in. What should we do? Um, and and we made in that exercise decisions that were the decisions to to act to save lives and to answer questions later. Um, the, it's easier to do it when it's on paper. Uh, it's much easier to do it than when you're in an exercise than when you're dealing with a real world situation. And but these are the questions that we're dealing with. Um, the, many people have asked me on a regular basis, "Why don't you just cross the border in Syria? You know where the people are." because we know that we'll get expelled if we do that. And so these are never easy answers. And a lot of what we do are not things that we talk about in settings like this. Full stop. (laughs) Moving on. Uh, People who have influenced me. I can say my mother, but that wouldn't be a public figure. Um, Very seriously, it's, it's, I, I, you know, I, I often say that if you're sitting in a room like this, having a conversation like this, and you care about these issues, you won the parent lottery because you've had the opportunity to be educated, to to um, develop opinions, and to care about people in, who who didn't. Um, and so I know I'm one of those people who won the parent lottery, so I laugh when I say my parents, but it does start there. But in the broader sense, because they gave me opportunities, I have been influenced by local politicians throughout my career, national politicians in the United States who took a liking to me and realized that I would work myself into a frenzy to get the, the right things done. Um, and I, I won't name names. I, people af- often ask me to write, you, tell me I should write a book. And I say a lot of people need to die before I could write a book because <laughs> there are lots of stories that I would want to tell that would not be helpful to the work that I want to do. Um, and a lot of them are good stories that people don't want me to tell. Um, and, but you, know, you, you, you read about the people whose shoulders we all stand on. And, of course, as a person of, of, of African-American descent, you know, people like Martin Luther King and, all of, and, and uh, Harry Tubman and people who worked in the United States to ensure that I had the opportunity to stand before you as the executive director of the World Food Program today. Of course, those are people who I admire. But people, we had the opportunity at WFP to work with Mother Teresa. They're the people who are the older staff members who have pictures of women and WFP worked with Mother Teresa. They covet those. But you think about how selfless, a selfless commitment to doing good in the world. And no matter how much I achieve, I'll never be that good. But what an inspiration 
on a daily basis. You think about people who put their lives on the line. I, I was just in Yemen where I was told a story about a, a now 15-year-old girl who was the youngest divorcee in the world. She was 12 years old when she was divorced because there's no marriage, there's no age limit on marriage, and she was nine years old when she was married, and even though there's no age limit, you cannot have sexual intercourse with the bride until she is physically capable, and he raped her when she was 12, so she was able to um, use that to escape and then use it as the basis for getting a divorce at the age of 12, legally getting a divorce. Those are the kind of people who you get up every day, you say, I am never going to be that good, that strong, or need to make those kinds of decisions. But it's because of people like that that I feel like I can do this work. Because no matter how hard it gets, no matter how many midnight flights I take and so I can make a speech at 6 o'clock in the morning so I can get people like you to understand the importance of the work that we do, I'll never be in a situation like that. And every time I read a book about another person who has, who has committed their lives to doing the kind of work that changes people's lives, I'm inspired again. And so I, I, I always want to find new individuals. You all inspire me for sitting here at 8 o'clock at night and listening to me for the last hour and a half. It makes me feel like, and I was saying this earlier, I said I have more of my career behind me than ahead of me, and seeing young people who care enough to sit through a conversation about humanitarian space and the challenges that we're facing, ensuring that we, do, we can create a hunger-free world, inspires me. Because it's you that's going to take up the mantle. Because we're going to leave a lot of work unfinished. But the tools are there for us to really change the world for those who need us most. And I thank you for caring enough to want to be a part of it. Thank you all. just uh, falls upon me to um, thank Earthrin um, tremendously uh, for taking time out of an incredibly busy schedule to come talk to us at uh, the LSE. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Greg and her staff for uh, making this possible and for doing all of the arrangements, and also to the uh, event staff from the LSE. Thank you both. You, uh, uh, you handled yourself with dignity, decorum, uh, and uh, a, a tremendous aplomb with the microphone, so well done. Thank you, everyone, for coming, and good night.